I am so glad that you're here with us today. If you want to turn into John chapter 19 and put your finger in it, and then turn over to Genesis chapter 2 and put your other finger in it, and hold those places, uh, and just kind of hang with me here for a few minutes. I, I have a message that's on my heart that God laid on my heart while I was on vacation. And uh, I just want to talk to you today about keeping watch. And the Bible says that we need to keep watch. Do you all know that Jesus is coming back? Your response this service was a little better than the early service where I had two amens. I think they were still asleep. It was 8 o'clock. I don't blame them. But Jesus is going to come back. This is a scriptural truth. It's in the Bible. Uh, all through the Bible, sprinkled throughout the Bible. And today we're going to kind of unpack some things. Uh, but first, I'll, I'll let you know why, what happened to me. I know I gave you a little hint of this last week. But I, um, I, was, I was doing my devotions on vacation and just reading the Word. And, and I was in the book of Leviticus and just methodically reading through very slowly. Uh, and and uh, just my prayer internally was, God... I want to see Jesus in this. Now, if you read the book of Leviticus slowly and methodically, you can find Jesus in it. He's all throughout. You can't read a book of the Bible without finding Jesus in it. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, you start looking and you find blood sacrifice, you find regulations for priests, you find all of these things that point toward Christ and His holiness and the expectation for our holiness and laws and so on and so forth that are good to follow and good to understand. But this particular day, I was reading and, and it was that same monot- monotonous of repetitive things that, that just, God is so clear about the direction, it was almost confusing, if you know what I mean, reading through the book. And I just was praying to myself, Lord, help me find Jesus in this. And uh, I was reading faithfully, and after a little bit of time, the Lord spoke to my heart. Now, when He spoke to my heart, He did not speak to me about anything I was reading. Here's a really cool thing about God. God is not bound by anything except by His Word. Now, let me explain that for a second. Most of the time when we read the Word, He'll speak to us through the Word. We'll read it and we'll say, oh, wow, and He'll bring something to light and and it'll touch our heart and we'll be like, wow, God spoke to me today. And sometimes, just out of our faithfulness, God will speak to us apart from what I'm reading. This will happen to me. I'll be reading and the Lord will just lay something on my heart and, and, and I'll be like, wow, that's really cool. God, that has nothing to do with what I'm reading. But it has to line up with His Word. It may not line up exactly with what you're reading. It may not have come out of what you're reading. But whatever He spoke to your heart has got to be measured and tested against the Word. Amen? We're going to do a little bit of that this morning based off of what the Lord spoke to me. But when He spoke to me on vacation in that condominium with the beach just outside, I was laying there and I was reading my Bible. And when He spoke to me, He spoke as if, uh, with some excitement and as a father, almost like parents, when you get your kid a gift at Christmas that you know that they're going to love, that perfect gift, you know what I'm saying? The one that they thought you would never get because mom and dad aren't going to buy that for me. It's too expensive, but, 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 but you bought it already and you're like, I'm ready to give it to them right now. So you start dropping hints, you know. Well, that's kind of what God did to me. That morning as I laid there on that bed reading my devotions, the Lord said these words to me very clearly in my heart. 
the purification of the church in America has begun. And he said this, I will return for a spotless bride that has been washed white. The purification of the church in America has begun. And I will return for a spotless bride that has been washed white. Now, this had nothing to do with anything I was reading. But the Lord knew what was going on in my heart and in my mind. Uh, where I was at in my thinking with my own struggles. I told him in the earlier service, I said, I, I went on vacation working and, and, and struggling through some things internally in my heart and my mind, some of our own battles and some of our own things that we've had to carry and, and worry about. But folks, listen, we, the, the Lord knew what it was that I needed. And what He did was is He reminded me of His return. In other words, Bob... Whatever you deal with and whatever anybody's dealing with in the church or anything else in their life, a follower of Jesus Christ can have some joy in them because they know that this is not going to last forever. I will return. And the Lord said the purification process has already started. Now, this morning, for those of us that have been raised in church, we understand the reference of saying that we are the bride of Christ. We grasp that. We understand that. However, I, I know some men are uncomfortable being referred to as a bride. It, it has a, a negative quality to them about it. A lot of men don't like to come to church because they feel like it's all for women and children. Listen, this reference to being the bride of Christ is something that we see sprinkled throughout all of the Word of God. It's made very clear that, that God Himself is wanting to show us who we are in Him and show us His plan and process at which we can look at and understand for His return. So this morning, I want us to understand a few things in light of that as it pertains to the ancient ceremonies, the processes of the Jewish culture at that time. When Jesus is talking about us being the bride of Christ and when Scripture starts prophesying about the bride of Christ, I want us to fully understand what that has and has to do with us today. And when we look at those things... We see three levels in that wedding ceremony. We see, number one, a contract. We see a contract first. And what that means is, it, this is called a ketubah with this ancient Jewish uh, tradition. It, it, they come together and, and the, the, the father of the, the bride and the groom come together and find a contract and address each other in a contract. And they write up a contract, it's called a ketubah. And they figure out what the dowry is going to be to purchase, in effect, this daughter for this groom to marry, okay? So they do this and they work through this process and the dowry is paid. Now, immediately when that contract is signed, these individuals are married. It kind of works in reverse to what we have today, which is where we get to know each other, uh, we get married, and then we sign the contract, for the Jewish tradition in this area, they signed the contract first, then they got to know each other. Seems backwards, doesn't it? They get to know each other, and then ultimately what takes place is, following this, is what's called the consummation. The consummation took place only when the father consented to the groom that he was allowed to come to the home of the bride and consummate the marriage in her own house. So once this was signed, the couple was married. And the father, for the protection of the bride, would watch 
and make sure that the groom had gone off and literally had, had a home and was able to provide and meet the needs of this daughter, the father had to say, how many of us dads like that process? I'll tell you what, okay, you can marry my daughter, but before you marry the daughter, let's see if you got your ducks in a row. Amen? So he's watching to make sure the ducks get in a row. And these processes from, from the signing of the contract to the consummation could take years on end. Sometimes the consummation took years because the contract was made up with a, a child that was too young for marriage and they would wait for maturity. Sometimes it just took a while for dude to get his act together. And dad needed to sign off and say, okay... I see that you've got your home ready. I see that you're able to sustain my daughter. You've paid the dowry. And now it's time for you to come and to take her as your bride. Now this period, again, could be long periods of time. For example, we look in the Bible and we see the account of of what happened uh, under Laban's watch with Jacob. And he loved his one daughter, who he wanted to go into contract for to work for seven years. And he did. But at the end of the seven years, he gives him Leah. Right? So he had to work another seven years to fulfill the contract that he had already signed and everything for it. Listen, it's it's up to the father. I know Laban kind of mishandled that situation. Another example is with uh, Jesus' earthly father and his mother Mary. We see what happened there. They were not married. They had not, he had not taken her as his wife, but yet they were already betrothed. In other words, the contract was signed. The dowry had been paid. But when the time came that Joseph saw that she was pregnant and he knew it wasn't him, the scripture said he was going to divorce her quietly. Remember that? We see that in the scripture. Why? Because when the contract is signed, there's a faithfulness toward each other and it was already done. All right. You were married, even though it had not been consummated. But when the father was to give time, Joseph was an honorable man and he was waiting for the father of Mary to give time for him to come and to take her as his wife. So once the consummation takes place, what followed immediately after is the celebration, also known as the wedding feast. And this happened at the home of the groom. The wedding feast happened at the home of the groom or oftentimes the father's home because they would build an addition onto it. So we see this, we understand this. Jesus, when he was at the wedding uh, uh, celebration in, in Cana of Galilee, when he turned the water into wine, this is what he was at. A couple had been married, he'd gone and they'd consummated that, and they had a celebration. A great celebration together so that they could enjoy that uh, as a feast together. So what is the significance in these things for us? Well, we're going to start with the contract. Now remember... God said the purification process of the church has begun and he's going to return for a bride that's spotless and washed white. The contract. Our heavenly father and our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, established the dowry, the price to be paid, and entered into a covenant to purify us, to cleanse us from our sin, that we would live betrothed or espoused to him as our savior. This contract obviously took place on the cross with the high price of the blood of Jesus Christ. We celebrated that over the Easter season and the resurrection. We understand these things. The price has been paid. The contract has been signed. And for us right now, as the bride of Christ, we understand that He has gone away to prepare a place for us. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for us to be the bride of Christ, we must first 
excuse me, grasp and understand this contract. So look at at John 19. We see this account in John where Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is dead. He had given up the ghost already. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now this reference is mentioned in the book of John, but it's very, very significant in what we're talking about today. Now, keep that in your mind and flip over to Genesis chapter 2. Flip back all the way to the beginning, and we see the very first marriage. We see Adam, and Adam in verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Anybody ever seen a man in a deep sleep before? You ever heard a man in a deep sleep before? Sometimes I see a man in deep sleep while I'm preaching. Usually you don't hear a man in deep sleep while you're preaching. If you hear a man in deep sleep while you're preaching, usually the wife goes. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Let's talk about this for a moment. A lot of people don't usually look at Genesis chapter 2 as being prophetic of what took place on the cross. But let's look at the significance of it here for just a moment. We have Jesus hanging on the cross who gets a spear in His side. His side is open and out of the side of Him comes blood and water. Two things that we see there is we see righteousness, the cleansing of the blood. We see the water. We have two ordinances in the church. We, we, have, uh, we have communion by which we take the broken body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and drink those, the juice representing that. And then we also have uh, water baptism, which signifies the cleansing and the washing of our sins away. This happened on the cross. This is the work that Jesus did for His bride on the cross. And His side was open. His side was open. There was a work done there. There was an espousing. There was a blood covenant established where a bride was given to him where now he says, I will call you righteous. I will call you justified. Instead of saying, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he now brings us into his kingdom by that work. We are espoused to him through the cross and through the blood of the cross and through the work in his life. We look at these things and you say, Pastor, you're crazy. Why would you make that connection? Because in Genesis there in verse 24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. But yet in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So when we're looking at the rib being taken out, and God could have God could have made a woman out of something separate, but He said, oh no, it must come forth from Him. And He brought it forth and put the two together. He didn't take her from His heel. He didn't take her from His backside. He took her from His side. To be with. To be together. To be joined. 
For the church, Jesus Christ, we are made in His image. We are birthed out of the work that was done on the cross. We are saved by His blood. Because of what He did, He was in a deep sleep, y'all. He is dead. He died. And He died for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. And He espoused Himself to us. A contract was made. And then, because of that contract, you believe upon that work. You believe upon the cross. You believe upon Jesus Christ. You are a part of that covenant. You are saved. It is done. It's signed. It's sealed. His Spirit seals us. We are espoused to Him. And with that contract comes a ton of wonderful promises. It's not so bad to be the bride of Christ, is it? So following this contract, we see this in John chapter 14. Turn over there if you want to, or follow on the screen. or If you're on version, you can follow on version. whatever. The significance of the consummation, okay? The significance of the consummation. Jesus Christ, here's, here's where we're at in time. The work has been done on the cross. The contract has been done by the blood of Jesus. And now we're just waiting on the consummation. We're waiting for Him to return and take His bride. But look at this verse here. John 14 verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, Jesus is using a specific form of, 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 of communication here, making a direct reference to this process of the wedding. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Jesus said, I'm going away for a time. I'm going away from you for a little bit. Don't be worried about it. I will be back. Just like that husband that says, hey, I'm going to pay the dowry. And if I'm going to pay the dowry and I'm going to go over and build a house onto my dad's house, a room onto my dad's house, or my own place, whatever, if I'm going to go do that, I'm not going to waste my time and my money. I will come back to you. So don't worry. It's the same type of language. And here's how I know that he did this purposefully. Because Jesus is the creator of all things. In John chapter 1 it says that by him all things were created. And without him nothing was created. Jesus created all things. He spoke it into existence. Okay? So when he goes to be with the Father, he doesn't. it's not like he's in heaven right now with a bunch of two-by-fours and a hammer and nails in his pouch. What am I going to do now? People keep getting saved. It's like I get a house done and then there's like four more. Thank God for that little stint as a carpenter's son on earth. I wouldn't know what I was doing. That's not happening. Jesus can speak a place into it. He's already, it's ready, okay? When it's ready for us, it'll be ready. He's not working at it. He's using a specific language, the type of language that was used as a, as a bridegroom to an espoused wife. Listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I will come again and we're going to consummate it. Here's the problem. The groom couldn't come back until he had the Father's approval. But if you look in the Scripture, you see 
This is very common and similar in, in, in this exact same thing with the return of Christ. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. When He tells me to come and to take my bride home, when I get the approval, when the maturity is there, when the things are done, when things are taking place and it's in His timing, then I will come. You see, in this period, we have a responsibility of remaining true to Him. Amen? We have a responsibility of remaining, remaining faithful to the one that we are a spouse to, that we believe upon. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, So when they met together, they asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. So God the Father has set these things. He has established them. And at the right moment, at the right time, He's going to look at His Son and He's going to say, Son, it's time. You may now go get your bride. And our Savior is going to call us home, folks. And I'm telling you, as I laid there on that bed that night, that day, that morning, the Lord spoke to me and said, the purification of the church in America has begun. And I will be returning for a bride who is spotless and washed white. Following this celebration, this uh, consummation is a celebration or the wedding feast. The consummation would take place in the Jewish heritage and then immediately after they would all come together and celebrate. They would celebrate immediately after. So we know this, that according to Scripture, that immediately after we're going to celebrate. When Jesus comes to get us, there's going to be a celebration that's taking place. Well, where is Jesus now? Jesus told him he was going to the Father. Jesus had told Mary not to touch him because he had not yet returned to the Father. Stephen saw Jesus as he was being stoned at the right hand of the Father. He said this, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God because Jesus and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then John saw Jesus in a glorified state and when he saw the book of Revelation and began to record it, he saw Jesus. Where was he? He was with the Father. There's going to be a celebration at the Father's house. Jesus said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also. Where is he? He's in the presence of the Father. It's, 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 we're not going to be here forever. And the people can look at me and tell me I'm crazy and I'm kooky and I'm strange. I don't have enough time in this service to cover everything that I would love to cover about everything I'm talking about. You want to sit down and have a conversation with me? We'll go through the word together. I'll block off a day. And we can find out what all the word really says about the rapture of the church and the things we're talking about this morning. So you may say, Pastor, okay, Jesus paid the dowry, and we believe on Him, He saved us and sanctifying us. Why then does there need to be a further purification of the church in America? It's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. I want to clarify something. I'm not talking about works-based ministry. I'm not talking about trying to earn God's favor by being holier than thou or anything else. 
We know that we're, we're not saved by our works. We're saved according to Ephesians chapter 2. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. I'm not talking about trying to be super Christian here. Okay? What I'm talking about is two different things. We're talking about the church. And we're talking about the bride. And I want to be cautious this morning. Because I don't want to assume that it's okay to make false accusations against the bride of Christ. And you say, why, why do you say that, Pastor Bob? Because I, there, there are some things wrong in the churches today. There are. But I want to be cautious not to lump it all together. Because men in here in this room, have you ever had anybody badmouth your wife? How did you feel? I don't want to do that to God. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to tick God off because God, God's bigger than me. <laughs> he really is. But the language and the terminology that was used when the Lord spoke to me that day was church. The church in America. Speaking of a specific church, you know, if you read in, in Revelation chapter 3, you see seven letters to seven churches that were specific churches that had specific messages from God to those churches. In this Word from the Lord, he spoke about the church in America, but then he spoke of his bride. When he spoke of his bride, here's the two things we're going to grasp this morning. For those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, you are saved. It's not this saved, resaved nonsense all the time, every time we mess up. There's grace for you. And God's grace far exceeds your sin, okay? And you need to live in that and be joyful in that. However, we need to become more focused and keep watch and recognize that his return is very near. Amen? For the bride of Christ, we need to be preparing ourselves just as a bride would, hear, would, would recognize that those days are coming, that I'm going to be getting married. There's a few preparations going on. Just a couple. John, you guys, you guys have preparations. You're not doing anything, are you? You doing preparations for the wedding? No. Rachel, you got a couple preparations going on? I figured you did. The bride dreams of that day and she prepares and prepares and prepares and there's a lot of work. For us, we need to be prepared. We need to make sure that we're in the faith. We need to make sure we're about His business. We need to be doing these things. For, for the bride of Christ, the saved individual, this is a wake-up call to make sure we're focused on the right things. For the church, as a whole, we need to make sure that we are a bride and not a religious person. Here in America... We are becoming more and more religious and less and less faithful to God on a regular basis. We are becoming more and more religious and more and more compromised about truth rather than... See, this is what God wants to purify. Right now, what's taking place is a separation. And we see this separation written out clearly in the parables. He's talking about the goats and the sheep. Separates the goats from the sheep. Those that are those that are all a part of the same group that he's separating out. He's talking about the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, and he's separate. Listen, that's what God is doing right now in beginning right here in America. People are either going to be in or they're going to be out. They're going to be a part of it or they're not going to be a part of it. They're going to be willing to suffer for truth or they're going to be afraid and, and crumble underneath it. Isn't this encouraging? This is so encouraging. What's going to take place, folks, 
is a great chasm in the organized church in the last days. Those who will stand for truth and those who aggressively teach false doctrine. As a matter of fact, there will be pressure from within the religious community, just as Herod and Pilate, who once hated each other and became friends in their mocking of Jesus, so shall the compromised religious culture of the United States join with those they, can, they once opposed to join in opposing the bride of Christ. This is a purification process by the child of God, the people of God being exposed to the fire of persecution and the fire of trial so that we would be tested and whether or not we'd be approved. I wish I could just come in here and just tell tons of jokes this morning and be happy. They told me after the first service, like, you, you're pretty serious. I was like, did I sound angry? They said, no, you didn't sound angry. It's just, that's just really heavy message. I was like, well, welcome to my world. <laughs> it's what I carry around with me. So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want us to look at something. Something that Paul prophesied to Timothy. And it's a passage of scripture. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read a lot of Scripture today. We're, I'll be done here in 15 minutes, I promise. Read a lot of Scripture today because we must understand where we're at in America. And, and let's look, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. These references toward the last days, the things that follow this, are defining the last days. And as I read through them slowly, I want you to be able to look and see if you recognize the time in which we live. Maybe I'm crazy. Verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful. Proud. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Without love. Unforgiving. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, heart-rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind whom, who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, persecutions and sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me, from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Does that list sound like our culture at all? Listen, I don't want to be judgmental of everybody else because I are one too, okay? We've all been there. You know, the scripture talks about us. Listen, you and I were all one of them too at one time, doing the same thing. But our culture is, is quickly spinning out of control here in America. 
in, in having forms of godliness and lacking the power, all of these things, people that, that, that are church attenders that are leaving and living without any impact of the gospel, not living in any kind of, uh, of obedience to the truth. And these same people will oppose the truth just as Moses was opposed in the wilderness. We all are going to have to deal with some level of persecution. But God's ready for us to come out from among them and be separate. He's ready for a bride that is making herself ready and a bride that will not compromise her dedication and commitment to her Savior. Let's read on. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul doesn't give a whole lot of sympathy to those that are living in this culture. And he says our only hope, the only answer, folks, that we have is to continue in what we have learned in the Word of God and to live out what we have to stay obedient to the word of God. He didn't say uh, avoid persecution. Amen. He said that I was persecuted, but God delivered me from all of it. In other words, he just said, deal with it. You obey the word of God. You're going to be persecuted for it. If you're going to live a righteous life in this kind of a culture, you're going to be persecuted for it. People are going to hate you for it. They're going to call you names for it. They're going to say things about you for it. It doesn't mean that we jump on the bandwagon and we get hateful back or we get mean back or we do things back. It just says you endure it. By obeying the word and standing strong in what the word says and let God deliver you from the troubles that he wants you to be delivered from. Amen? It doesn't say become like those who who fight and are angry and opposed. Don't become, instead, remain peaceful. Our answer is to hold on to the word. It is God-breathed, meaning when you obey it, you obey it above the whims of the culture. You are obeying a higher authority. I want to encourage you with this thought that living in the last days, these days that that Paul's talking about, if you don't have the Word of God and if you don't read the Word of God and you don't know the Word of God, you will be deceived. There is no if anymore. There is no maybe anymore. If you don't know what God has said in His Word, you will be deceived. We're not playing games anymore. The purification has begun. God is saying, which side are you on? Are you, where are you going to be? There is no in-between. We can't play games and say, well, listen, I, I told the early service this, right? That right now, there are people that are preparing themselves for your persecution. And they are studying this word and doing the best they can to find contradictions, to twist it. And they will lead you into an argument so that they can trip you up and leave you guessing when you walk away. It's a reverse evangelism. It's an atheistic evangelism. And the purpose and the goal is that they would confuse you and cause you to waver and to find some kind of social justice in our culture rather than obeying the truth. And I'm telling you, you think, well, I heard, to a, I heard a lot of good sermons. Preacher Bob said this, and Preacher Allen said this. Preacher, listen, and, I, and, and it's all going to come back. No, it's not going to come back to you at that moment. 
The Word of God is the only thing that Paul tells Timothy to hold on to. If you give that up, you 100% will be deceived. And I'm telling you this is your pastor. I love you. And the only reason I'm... T- Listen, I would, like I said, I'd rather get up here and tell a bunch of jokes. I really would. This is a heavy message. And the reality of it is, folks, is that we are heading into a new season here in America. And it's a season to where you and I are going to be tested and our faith is going to be checked to see if it's real or not. If we believe all of the Word of God or we take out parts of it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Sound like our culture? Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. What is a myth? It's a well-orchestrated devised lie that's purposeful for deception. I was lied to the other day. Y'all like to be lied to? Anybody else like to be lied to? I love it. Oh, I just love to be lied to. Especially when a person's trying to play you for something. I knew they were. I turned around, walked away from them, went and asked the person one question, and they said, yep. And I said, that's what I figured. Okay. Folks, there are people that are devising lies so that they can pursue their own desires rather than the truth. And... There's a lot, a lot of of very hot-button topics in our nation right now. There's more than one. There is more than one. Obviously, the, the biggest one being the homosexual movement right now. Now, before I say another word, I want you to hear my heart. I have had former students that I love dearly, that I am still in contact with, that are living out homosexual lifestyles. I have friends personal friends that are doing this. I know people in the community that that live this lifestyle. And I can tell you this, that since I've been saved and born again, if I said my whole life, I'd be a liar. But since I've been saved, I've not mistreated one of them. Not one. I have loved them. I have hugged their necks. I've prayed for them. I have ate meals with them. I've gone places with them. I love them, okay? Here's where people keep getting lost. They keep getting lost because they think that we hate homosexuals. I don't hate one of them. I love them dearly. Here's the problem. We understand what God has defined as sexual immorality, okay? In Leviticus chapter 18, you can read it, and that's not what I was reading the other day, by the way. Leviticus chapter 18, it goes from, it goes from beginning with um, 
uh, incest in a family down to just, I mean, fornication, having sex outside of a relationship uh, to all kinds of levels of sexual immorality. Obviously, homosexuals, uh, homosexuality is listed there as well as bestiality. Do you know that, that I have known people that are adulterers? I've known people that are, are, are fornicators. I've known people that are pornographers. And, and I have loved each and every single one of them. I've even said, I myself am a former pornographer. I get it. I understand. Sexual immorality in God's sight is sexual immorality. Doesn't mean we hate anybody. Love them. See, that's the part of love that's connected to truth. Okay? It's the same truth that set me free from my own addiction. It's the same truth that somebody had the guts to say, Bob, that ain't right. Look what the Word says. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Oh. (laughs) You see, it's the same understanding. It's the same thing that God has for us. And the problem is, is that our culture is trying to take one out and put it over here and say, this isn't this when it is. Now, I understand by saying this today as a pastor, I run the risk of offending a lot of people. But I hope that I have ripped my chest open and pulled my heart out enough to say, I love you, and I love your family members, and I love my friends. But in light of the Word of God, I cannot change my stance on that. And I love them, and I hate it. I, I can't change my stance on truth. I'm not their judge, and I'm not their jury, but I know what God has said. So I have to speak that truth. Here's the problem. Today, we are dealing with people who call themselves pastors and Christians who step out and say, I accept it. I can accept all I want to. It doesn't change God. And I don't want to be a willing party to uh, affirm someone's sin. I just can't do that. And I will speak truth to them. I will love them. You say, Pastor, what? It's not that big of a deal. Okay, well, let's just affirm all sin. I talked about lying just a minute ago. Let's just say, you know what? It's okay to lie. Everybody just lie. Just everybody lie. We'll erase all the laws against lying. Right now, for, the, for, for our sexual immorality, there are some laws in place for incest, obviously, for, uh, for rape and for, for things of that nature. There's not a law in place against homosexuality, and, and people are, are acting that out in their homes and their lives. And I understand all the, 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 the worries about all the areas. I'm not going to get into all that today. Those things can be discussed. But the reality of it, what it comes down to is, is this sin or is this not sin? And the only reason I bring this up is this and a couple other issues are going to be the polarizing, church purifying, dividing hot topics for the years to come. I know where I stand. I know where the Assemblies of God stands on this issue. You need to know. Okay? And if you have questions in your heart and your mind about it, come to me and we'll search it out in the Scripture. And I'll, I'll lovingly walk you through all of these things and help you see what the Bible says. If there's a question, not so that I can tell you what to believe, so you can come to terms with what the Spirit is leading you to understand. Why? Because there's too many people in our community and our families that we love dearly for us to be ignorant about the truth. There's just too many. You say, Pastor, what do we do then if people 
if people come at us and, and, and make threats and everything else and all these things, listen, they're going to. Uh, here, here's, here's in light of everything that I've said about the return of Christ. I have not heard any other religion mentioned except us. Just the Christians, Christians who despise everyone, blah, blah, blah. Listen, man, you can't find a group that's done more for the good of man than the Christian church. <laughs> Listen, I've not heard Islam mentioned once and they don't support homosexuality. I've not heard any other religion. All I've heard are those worthless Christians who are a roadblock to everything. Listen, mark that in your heart that those words are the spirit of the Antichrist. Anytime something is directed only at the church of Jesus Christ and not equally toward everyone else, please understand that it's not the individual saying it. They need Jesus. They need love. They need your mercy and grace. But those words that flow from the lips are a deception that come directly from the spirit of Antichrist that is described in Thessalonians, talking about it by Paul. He said that he's in the world now. And it's preceding the way for the actual Antichrist to come. These things will increase prior to the return of Christ, okay? And only get worse after the church has been removed. But I don't know about you. I love too many people that are lost right now to just give up and say, whatever, we'll just, you do whatever you want, I'll do what I want and forget about it. I'm not going to be mean, I'm not going to be hateful. I'm going to share one more scripture with you and then we're going to close this morning. Matthew 24, Jesus speaking of his return. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will return, will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Noah had to separate himself from his culture. It's in the days of Noah, folks, and Noah had to separate himself from his culture. He was building an ark in a land that had never seen rain. <laughs> Folks, listen, you think there wasn't mocking with that? I, I guarantee you there's going to be mocking. It's just as it was in the days of Noah. You might as well encourage yourself. People are going to call you names. People, whatever, are going to say things about you. Don't respond to them as they respond to you. Respond to them as Christ would have you to respond to them. There's passages here where it says the faithful servant, how, how, how Christ wants to return and find his house faithful and instead of those that join in with the culture. We know that, we understand that. Lastly, Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has, been, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Our Lord said, The purification of the church in America has begun. And he will be returning for a bride that is spotless and washed white. Listen, don't let the hot button topics of our culture press you out. Listen, it's willing, be willing to suffer. It doesn't say be a jerk, jump up and start yelling, screaming and being hateful. Please never do that, ever. Never, 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 never. Scripture makes clear we should speak the truth in love. You'll not make any impact by being a jerk or a jerkette. Amen? So don't. At the same time, don't fold under the pressure. God will deliver us at the right time. So I know this was kind of a heavy word today in one respect, in light of the loved ones that I love dearly, that are struggling in multiple areas. But it's also encouraging to the fact that, folks, the return of Christ is very near. And the burdens of this life are going to be lifted off. And we are going to be able to meet him in the air and be made like him. In an instant, the Bible says, in a twinkling of an eye. Don't give that up for anything. Don't give that up for the favor of man. Amen? Amen. Don't do that. It's not worth it. The price is too high.